I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the authors and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This series contains discussions of violence and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Previously, an algorithm. I feel I should have got locked up for that. Yeah, I'll beat her, but I ain't rape you. Well, I'll rape you by that standard y'all call it rape, but we don't call it rape. And Street's like, mm-hmm. you paid her, so what is she complaining about? After Vaughn's release from prison in August 2013, he moved back to Gary. When he first came home, he, he really didn't go to work. Okay. And two, three and one, I'm going for a walk. And I'm also going for a couple of fucking days. And in January 2014, Vaughn appears to have committed the first of his confirmed murders killing 28-year-old Tira Beatty. She told me she was gonna call me later, and waiting on her call, it never happened. Her fiance, Marvin Clinton, investigated her disappearance and discovered a man, likely Vaughn, had stolen her cell phone and was using it to call prostitutes. And Marvin says he took that information to the police. He did tell me things, but from that point on, what he did with the record, I have no idea. And around that same time, another woman had a run-in with Vaughn. She was one of the very first person that ever ran into him, but she happened to get away from him. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, this is Algorithm, and I'm Ben Kiebrick. At 11 a.m. on February 19th, 2014, just over a month after Tiara Beatty disappeared, Darren Vaughn contacted a woman who'd placed an ad as an escort on Backpage.com. That's the same site that Vaughn would later use to contact Africa Hardy. The woman, who we'll call Sarah, came forward with her story after Vaughn was arrested and she saw his picture on the news. Detective Ford looked into it 
He found the report that Sarah had initially filed and then went out to interview her. How did it make you feel when you saw him on the news? Ford recorded this interview, but the way it's recorded, you can hear him well. And how do you spell your last name? But many of Sarah's responses aren't audible. Luckily, I got access to Detective Ford's report about this interview, so I'll try to fill in some of the gaps when the audio isn't clear. I'd prefer to hear things firsthand from Sarah, and I reached out to her for comment, but I couldn't get in touch. You can tell from the get-go that she doesn't trust police, which makes sense given her story. I know it's hard for you to believe, but we're here to, to try to help with something, okay? How did you wind up meeting this guy? You had a back page ad? So you were in Chicago, you drove to Gary? Okay, so you met him at one house, and he asked you to drive to another one. Now, how did you find it? Did he give you directions to it, or did you put it, like, in your phone for GPS? So he just told you kind of how to get there. Now, in the report, you say that it's 1425 East 50th Court. East 50th Court was the street that Vaughn lived on with his brother, and the address Sarah had given police was just across the street from where Vaughn was staying. What happened when you got to the house, when you, when you meet him the first time? Sarah says that as she was getting out of the car, Vaughn ambushed her. He put a knife to her neck, and he told her, you're going to listen to me. Get in the fucking house. What did he look like? 40, skin tall, the guy with a head. Sarah says that because of Vaughn's facial tics, the way he ground his teeth, she thought that he used to be addicted to crack. He used to be. Okay, so he put a knife to your neck and he said, you're going to listen to me? Sarah says Vaughn took her to a back room in the house. He made her hand over her cell phone and car keys and told her that if she did what he said, then he'd let her go. But she didn't believe him because she saw duct tape and gloves in the corner of the room and he started asking her questions. He was asking about your car, who knows you're there, and he took your cell phone, correct? So you're saying that these are all signs that you felt that, that like you were going to probably wind up dead? Okay. I used to work in narcotics a lot, and I did undercover work. I have the same signs you do. When things start going weird, I start going, okay, it's time to get out of here. Something bad's about to happen. Sarah says that Vaughn then repeatedly raped her. He seemed to be toying with her. He would stop and tell her he was going to let her go, only to then begin again. At one point, she tried to escape, but he caught her and started beating her and tied her wrist behind her back with a small rope. Did he use any other weapons against you besides tie you up? After hours of holding Sarah at knife point, choking her and raping her, Sarah says that Vaughn gagged her, threw a coat over her head, and drug her outside to her own car. Some of this happened outside with him punching you and choking you? This part of the story reminded me of something. It reminded me of an incident that Vaughn's brother Reginald had described to police. Reginald said Vaughn had once called him at work out of the blue. It was like probably like the only time he's ever called me ever. And what did he say? He said, you know, he brought a chick back to the house and they got into it. I told him, like, hey, man, you can't be doing that. I think the reason he told me is because the neighbor across the street saw him outside arguing or some shit. Now, to be clear, Vaughn just told his brother that he'd gotten into a fight with a woman, 
He didn't tell his brother about any crimes, and I don't know for certain that the incident Reginald was describing has anything to do with Sarah, but I wonder. Regardless, Vaughn forced her into the car and started driving, and she felt certain that he was taking her somewhere to kill her. They got to 25th and Broadway, and he got stuck at a red light, and it's a pool hall we got over here on 25th and Broadway. And there was two old guys, two old gentlemen that were standing outside. Sarah managed to get the gag out of her mouth, and she screamed for help. They say what they heard was somebody in distress. And they looked, and they seen the woman tied up in the backseat of the car. The men snapped into action. They were armed, so they pulled out their guns and stopped Vaughn at the intersection. They held the car at the light, and... They was trying to make him get out the car so they could get the young lady out. And one of the guys shot off his pistol. One of the men fired a warning shot, and Vaughn ended up bailing out of the car and running away. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts something that makes me crazy is when people say well i had this career before but it was a waste and that's where the perspective shift comes that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper 
into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So basically, these people intervene for you, shoot a shot in the air, he takes off running, and the police show up. Sarah told police what had happened. She gave them the address where she'd met Vaughn and the fact that he'd said that his name was Darren. And after she finished up with the police, she met up with her boyfriend. And it was actually while she was talking to her boyfriend that she decided to go to the hospital and get a rape kit. This victim went through several hours in an exam. They had someone swabbing intimate parts of their body and taking pictures. And, you know, it's not done for fun. My name is Dr. Rachel Lovell. My area of expertise is around gender-based violence and I am a research assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University. So a sexual assault kit is a set of items collected by healthcare professionals, primarily in a hospital setting. The items can be swabs, combs, hair, photographs, any number of things. Lovell says that about 60% of sexual assault kits will have enough DNA to be analyzed and submitted to a database. It has to meet a certain number of criteria to be uploaded into CODIS. That's uh, the U.S.'s federal DNA database. When a new sample is uploaded to CODIS, it's compared against all the other samples. Based on Vaughn's previous crimes, his DNA should have been in the federal database. So if Gary Police had analyzed Sarah's rape kit and it had enough DNA, they should have been able to link the kit to Vaughn. They would have discovered he was a registered sex offender living just across the street from the address that she had provided. And they also would have found out that Vaughn had been convicted for an almost identical crime to the one Sarah described. Now to be clear, we can't know for certain what would have happened if police had tested Sarah's sexual assault kit, but it seems quite plausible that they would have been able to arrest Vaughn before he committed any more murders. But that's not what happened. Did the police ever follow up with you or take any steps to, to investigate this? They came and I told me. Is there any reason you didn't want to prosecute them for it? First they were saying, well, if you paid you, it would have been raped, right? Sarah is saying there that she didn't press charges because police told her, quote, if he had paid you, then it wouldn't have been rape, right? That's the exact same logic that Vaughn had used to justify his rape in Texas. And according to Sarah, that same logic was now coming from the Gary Police Department. You can hear Detective Ford sigh after he heard that. Well, I, and like I said, I'm, I'm sorry it, it, that happened. I'm going to continue to work on this, and I am going to check the rape kit. It's actually at Gary Police Department. I'm going to get that. I'm going to send it down to the state lab. So if there is any, you know, DNA evidence, we'll be trying to put that together. Instead of analyzing Sarah's sexual assault kit, police let it sit on a shelf for over a year. 
Sarah's kit was part of a backlog that's frustratingly common across the U.S. There are thought to be hundreds of thousands of untested kits, though exact numbers are hard to come by. This victim had a sexual assault kit collected, and the idea that nothing would be done from that, that that it would just be put on a shelf, I think is painful to think about. Dr. Lovell says that many people are shocked when they find out how many sexual assault kits never get tested. How can you have so many rape kits that were not tested? Like, how could you not test those? And that's a, you know, a very understandable, legitimate question. But the problem is even worse than many realize. The kit is a symptom of a much larger problem. Dr. Lovell was part of a project called the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. The initiative was to analyze all the backlogged rape kits in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, where Cleveland is located. And Lovell and her team then looked through all the police records from when these kits were submitted. What we really found through our research is that many things as part of those investigations were not completed. That includes taking victim statements, offender statements, running someone's criminal history, you know, all the sort of traditional investigative practices. Kids weren't tested because lots of things weren't done on these cases. These cases were closed pretty quickly. I think one of the most important things that people should understand is that the investigations are often not what you see in TV. People have a sense that law enforcement has the resources to thoroughly follow up on all of these leads and test whatever they want and, you know, do all these sorts of things. You know, sexual assaults in particular, the departments are under-resourced, they're not followed up on, and this is what happens when you don't follow up on them. Sexual offenders continue to offend. I was curious what had led Cleveland to analyze all the rape kits in its backlog. Why did they decide to go test their untested kits? Like many things, it came out of something really bad. On Halloween in 2009, they found the bodies of 11 decomposing women in the house of this man named Anthony Soule. Sowell was under investigation by Cleveland police for rape in 2009. Sowell killed 11 women and buried them in and around his Imperial Avenue home. Neighbors remember that stench of rotting flesh so wrongly attributed to Ray's sausage store next door. When they were sort of following up on these women's bodies, they identified that several reports had been made from women who were able to escape from Anthony Sowell and said that he had raped them and that they had taken him back to this house. And one of these women, maybe more, had a sexual assault kit collected that wasn't tested. At the time, Ohio saw a backlog of thousands of untested rape kits. The Plain Dealer reported that one from 2009 was later linked to Sowell, but by then he had killed at least four more. You never know sort of the counterfactual, so what had happened had they done that. However, if those cases had been followed up on, you know, there's a strong likelihood that he might not have been able to murder the subsequent victims. You know, the story I'm working on right now actually has a lot of eerie similarities. People reporting it to police, reporting the house and, you know, wasn't followed up on and led to more sexual assaults and murders. I don't know, it's really hard looking from the outside, kind of understanding how this stuff can happen or or how someone can kind of throw so many obvious red flags that don't seem to get caught. You know, the departments are under-resourced. They're underreported, they're not followed up on. And when you don't solve those crimes, they continue to go on and commit sexual assaults as well as other crimes. 
the sexual assault kit initiative is sort of pulling off a band-aid and showing actually there's much worse under here than what we thought and really trying to transform the way we think about sexual assault and how to investigate it. I asked Dr. Lovell how we ended up with this rape kit backlog in the first place. You have to start with the fact that DNA testing wasn't really available until the late 90s. But earlier on, police did collect biological samples, not for DNA testing, but for blood typing. When DNA testing did become available, it was expensive. It was very cost prohibitive. So police departments only really tested kits where there was a very strong likelihood that it was going to go to prosecution. And the testing could take sometimes years to get the DNA evidence back. So by and large, most jurisdictions may have started to test the kits going forward when it became cheaper or primarily those where the victim wanted to prosecute and the offender was a stranger. That's the only kits that they were really testing. They never really thought about going back to the old ones. To be fair, they didn't know what was going to be in there. They didn't know how many would have hits. Would it be worth it to test these kits? And there was a lot of conversation about, should we only test the stranger ones or the non-stranger ones? Because the idea is that DNA will help you identify someone. But if you already know who raped you, what's the point of testing? What they didn't foresee from that is that kids can hit to each other. So here's one person who might have sexually assaulted four acquaintances. And although each person had their own police report, the kids have now linked them together. We also have a strong research to show that because offenders often sexually assault strangers and non-strangers, one person's known offender is somebody else's unknown offender. So when the kits hit to each other, you now have a named suspect. They didn't really have a larger sense either about how many of these kits would be hitting to each other. Here's these seasoned law enforcement officers and I would be sitting in meetings and they would be, you know, just shocked at the number of rapes that this person had been connected to and how different the rapes were in terms of victim preference and age and gender and race and all these sorts of things. They're like, how did, we never would have put these together had it not been for DNA because they're so different. Was this a shock to researchers as well? I think the number was a little shocking when you started to pull the ball together. I mean, in Cuyahoga County, a fourth of these cases are linked to known serial sex offenders. So they know that they're connected to some other sex crime or they're connected to another rape kit. Almost a quarter of the kits that were analyzed contained a DNA sample that matched the sample in another kit or a sample from a known sex offender. Can we say then that 25% of these offenses are serial offenses or does that not work for some reason? I think you can extrapolate to that. There's also researchers from the Detroit Saki project, about a third of theirs were connected to more than one sexual assault. So we estimate it at being at 25%. And then in terms of absolute numbers, how many are we talking about with 25%? So as of December, there was about 850 known serial sex offenders. Oh. And again, that, that's the ones you know. Don't forget, though, that sexual assault is the most underreported violent crime and still 850 known people who are connected to some other rape. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like if you compared it to like murder or something like that, right? If you thought about 800 serial killers active in this county, that that would sound completely insane. 
Uh, and it, it does sound completely insane with serial <laughs> rape too. Right, right. You know, to what extent has this actually led to, you know, opening back up investigations or convictions? So uh, Cuyahoga County started completely new investigations for 7,000 rape kits from 1993 through 2011. Um, they just finished testing and investigating all of those. Over 800 defendants have been indicted. It shows that you can get convictions from old sexual assault cases when there are sufficient resources for victims in terms of victim advocacy and victim support. And there's sufficient um, political will to make sure that these cases are investigated and prosecuted. Cuyahoga County's investigation into their rape kit backlog has been an enormous success, in part because they had buy-in at the county, state, and national level. After they'd begun addressing the problem at the county level, they got federal funding from the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, a national initiative to end the rape kit backlog, which launched in 2015. Cuyahoga County has the most number of convictions relative to the number of kits. And there's several reasons for that. Most notably is that Cuyahoga County is one of the first ones to do this. So it's an early adopter jurisdiction. It's before the federal money was available to do this. So they kind of got a head start. And the other head start that they got was that the state crime lab paid for the testing of all the kids. So they didn't have to use resources to pay for the testing, but instead put those resources towards investigation and prosecution. So they really got a large number of staff and personnel. So they've seen a very large number. Over 800 defendants have now been indicted. Do you know how many of those 800 were kind of already in prison for something else? For sure, some of them were in prison for long periods of time, but for all indicted defendants, we looked at their criminal histories and the median amount of time that they had been incarcerated, that could be jail or prison, was around six months. Some of them, you know, were convicted of murder and had life sentences, but overall, they weren't incarcerated for long periods of time. Yeah, I was speaking to another researcher about how you assess the threat of recidivism, given that so many of these crimes go unreported. So that kind of makes it hard to figure out how much people are reoffending. Do you have a sense of how the data from rape kits is changing or, or should change the way we think about reoffending? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And in fact, SACI data, the connection is made when the victim reports and there's DNA collected, not at the time of conviction. So you have a much more representative sample of sexual assaults. I think the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative is telling us that serial offending is much more common than previously assumed because now we're getting a, a less biased view of what that actually looks like. And that in fact, law enforcement should start with the assumption that they've done this before. I guess I was just shocked at kind of what people can do and how light that punishment seemed to me as someone not familiar with this stuff. Yeah, I think one of the sort of larger existential problems with this is that individuals have to come back to the community, right? Most of them. The problem is oftentimes the offenders will come out of prison worse than what they went in. And there's no good treatment for sexual offenders, adult ones. There is some stuff around juveniles, but for adult male sex offenders, the research is pretty consistent that treatment is not very effective. What are we supposed to do when these individuals are out? I don't have the answer to that. 
But I think it's an important conversation to have. I know that, for example, in Washington state, there's this place called Sex Offender Island. The first time I heard someone talk about it, I was like, Sex Offender Island? That sounds like a place I certainly don't want to go, you know? Like, that sounds terrible. And it's a it's a place where they have civilly committed individuals who are the worst of the worst sexual offenders. And so this is kind of like, they've served their sentence, you can't legally keep them in prison, but you can involuntarily commit them, kind of like a psychiatric condition, but it's essentially an extrajudicial prison or something. Yes. And sometimes some offenders say, you know, put me in this because I will continue to offend. And sometimes they're just civilly committed by saying, you know, we've deemed you as being too dangerous. I'm not suggesting that's the right answer, but, you know, I I think these are conversations that should also be had as well. Like, what do we do with individuals who may have a hard time being reformed and they are still a danger to society? I don't want myself or my children to live next to that person, but at the same time, that person has served their debt to society, at least according to the courts. Yeah, it seems to me that like our kind of intuitions about these crimes don't match up with the laws and the sentences. But then it seems to me from your research that also the reality of the crimes doesn't match up with our intuition either. You know, so I don't know, just everything is kind of messed up right now. (laughs) I know, I know. Yeah, I have no, you know, some of the other things I could provide recommendations. I don't know what to do. I think it's, those are sort of philosophical questions, but I think there is a larger story about now what? How do we as a society handle violent sexual predators? I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Lovell's research shows that Sarah's story with a rape kit that went unanalyzed and a rape that went uninvestigated, that story is far from unique to Gary. It's part of a bigger problem occurring all across the country. But when Marvin Clinton says that he heard about Sarah's story and how the police hadn't followed up on the information she'd given them or analyzed her rape kit, it didn't shock him. I wasn't surprised at all. They made her feel like she was a worthless person. So she just stopped interviewing with them. It seems like, again, if they had just taken her seriously, she could have taken them to the house. They would have seen that this guy was a registered sex offender who had almost killed a woman in Texas, and they could have stopped all of this from happening. Exactly. God, that's so fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. If they would have took her seriously, instead of making her feel that her life wasn't worth nothing, like, we're not knocking what you're doing, we're not trying to pass judgment on you, but we just want to know what's happening and let her know that her life meant something. Clinton said that Sarah's story reminded him of his own experience. It kind of go inside with each other. After Vaughn's arrest, Marvin says he learned police had lost the phone records he provided them. They looked through the file. They didn't have it. So we don't know what the other detective did with it, if he just threw it away or whatever the case may be. But, but you told them this whole story about how you had gotten the records and called and spoken yeah. to this woman and that a man had called. Exactly. I told him all the numbers that I called. I mean, it it feels like at least once you had told them that he had her cell phone, you know, that they should have been able to track down where he was or something. Exactly. It seems from both Marvin and Sarah's stories, the police ignored crucial leads early in 2014, and these errors may have left Vaughn free to commit more murders. Personally, I think if police had investigated either of these leads thoroughly, they could have caught and arrested Vaughn, and Africa Hardy and many of the later victims would be alive today. But could Vaughn have been stopped even earlier? 
he claimed he had been doing this for 20 some years. If that's a true analysis, there should have been more than seven victims. Do you wonder if there are other victims out there? We have a lot of missing females out here. Some of them are considered cold cases, but I mean, they've been missing for years. To think back when he said he'd been doing it for 20 years, we got some people that have been missing almost that long. Now, is it just a coincidence that he said he'd been doing it all this time and we got all these people still missing? Possible. Or could it actually be something to it? No, we don't know. We can only go by what he say. Now they dismissed some of the ideas that he had that they found not to be true, but we don't know what is and what ain't. So there were some stuff that he said that they looked into and they weren't sure if it was true? Yeah, yeah. They had their doubts about it. I mean, even Detective Ford said he'd been looking at a couple of cases that he was trying to link to Darren Van, but he just hadn't been able to link them. I know of three cases me and him was talking about, but he found victims that were strangled. His priority was to try to link the cases to Darren Van. Right now, he just ain't been able to do that. But if they do link some more cases to him, I wouldn't be surprised. Could Vaughn have been stopped even earlier, before any of these crimes in 2014? Was Vaughn responsible for the murders the algorithm had detected? And could police have caught Vaughn if they had heeded Hargrove's warnings? I want to change gears here and switch the focus away from Vaughn's 2014 crimes and back towards Hargrove's algorithm. I reached back out to Hargrove to let him know what I'd found out about Vaughn and Vaughn's confessions. Were you able to get any audio out of the Gary Police Department? You did. Next time on Algorithm. You know, I have tried over 500 murder cases. Um, There are some cases that stick in your mind. And this was a case that stuck in my mind because, number one, we had a a good defense to the forensic evidence, if you can call it forensic evidence. And his defense was that he had been dealing drugs and that he owed the person he was dealing with a lot of money. That's one of the critical needs for law enforcement. There needs to be a national updated data set for homicide. All right, it is 7.43 p.m. I uh, just checked my mail. I was looking for a wedding invitation, and instead I found a piece of mail from Darren Vaughn. I had written to him a a couple months ago, seeing if he had any interest in talking. Open this up. Never gotten a piece of mail from a, a serial killer before. This episode was written and produced by me, Ben Kiebrick. Algorithm is executive produced by Alex Williams, Donald Albright, and Matt Frederick. Production assistance and mixing by Eric Quintana. The music is by Makeup and Vanity Set and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Christina Dana, Miranda Hawkins, Jamie Albright, Rima Elkeali, Trevor Young, and Josh Thane for their help and notes. 
Next week, we're going to have a bonus episode where we address some listener questions. If you have any questions, if you have any tips about the investigation, really anything at all, please call and leave a voicemail at 888-501-3309. That's 888-501-3309. Or reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Ben underscore Kiebrick, K-U-E-B-R-I-C-H. Would really love to hear from any of you, even if it's just general thoughts about the show. We're doing that to both address your questions and also we've gotten some interesting tips already that we want to look into. So we just need a little extra time to research and then work on the next episode. Thanks. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.